Episode 17 of the Bearded Carcast. They said it wouldn't last after four. Who said that? I don't know. Maybe we did. <laughs> I am Mike Pacheco, Dave Friedman. This is the Bearded Carcast, a Final Four preview edition, although we're going to talk about a lot of other stuff. We have some uh, NFL information uh, and topics to discuss. A lot of stuff happening yesterday at the owners' meeting. Of course, the Carolina Panther is still up for sale and uh, potential bidder in town today as we tape this on Wednesday. Uh, a lot of uh, interesting things coming out of the rules. Committee. I gotta go real soon, though. I gotta go look at the site at Bank of America yes, Stadium. Yes, yes, you have to do a, your, your site visit, which is now apparently pretty big when you're spending north of two point five billion on a Before team. Before you bid two billion dollars, don't you have a pretty good idea what the facility looks like? Obviously, you want to walk through, but like yeah. something tells me that his people have already seen the place. Well, and just look at it on TV. I mean, when, when you buy a new house, do you look at pictures on? online and go you know after we after we get deep in the process then i'll go look around the place well i will say this though having looked at houses in the past uh you do have to do what you walk through because sometimes pictures are deceiving exactly yeah <laughs> that's yeah. the point of yeah. pictures you yeah. want to make it look yeah. better than it actually is well and people spend lots of money getting like professional photography done yeah. now i will say this having and, and this is you know not being a homer here because i do have an affiliation with the panthers that stadium I mean, I've been going to that stadium for 18 years, 17, 18 years, um, and it is almost as in good shape now, at least, you know, visually. But are there parts of the walkthrough that he should be particularly attentive to? I, I mean, not, not from, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but uh, everything looks pretty good for, for my eyes. I just think it's a funny visual that a, a guy that's worth, $50 billion is walking through a stadium as if he's going to see something and go, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't like that crack in the wall. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to buy the team. No, now. or even yet. Wow. I may have 2.5. I don't know. Maybe 2.3. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll uh, we'll get into that. Of course, baseball is getting started pretty soon here. So a lot of great storylines. going to end soon, too, in like 10 months from now. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I'm very... Interested, obviously, being a Red Sox fan growing up, interested to see what the Red Sox do. Obviously, they have a big three as far as pitching, new manager. Yankees have a new manager. Uh, Angels have a very interesting player who uh, looks like it's going to be a two-way player. That that was kind of how he was billed as advertised, and looks like that's going to happen. The Giants made some some interesting off-season moves. And there's good-looking beer at Yankees. Yeah, Stadium. how about that? Although I don't think it's going to, I don't think that foamy bear is going to uh, beer is going to work out too much. We have dogs. This is how. Interesting, this is the Bearded Carcast. We have two dogs scratching at the door to come in and be a part of things. Well, since no people actually want to participate, <laughs> we had to go to our four-legged friends. You should have brought Bella over. <laughs> yeah, th then we would have had a lot of ambient noise. Well, let's start off because, you know, a lot of shows like to uh, have these jokes about uh, how they're like the kiss of death, death, and, you know, if they mention something, they're the curse. I think we need to jump on the Mark Prosser train and say he was on the Bearded Carcast last week, and now he's got a new job. Who wants? a job the bearded car cast is open for business yeah he was you know we, we talked to him then i like him so much because he's genuine yeah. he is exactly the guy you talk to on the air exactly the guy you see at practice or you talk to before and after a game he just cares about the right things he cares about people and i think he's gonna do a terrific job, Western Carolina. Obviously, you got to go get players, but he's been doing that as an assistant coach for a long time, and he's the type of personality that I would want to play for him. I believe in him. 
He also, uh, in all those qualities, I mean, he's very, uh, very experienced. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, obviously grew up, you know, son of a coach, Skip Prosser, referenced that in the, in the press conference that he had yesterday. And you're right, he's going to do things the right way. But look, let's right now, what's one of the big issues in college basketball? It's, it's recruiting. It's, it's, you know, pun intended, uh, I guess a little bit here. Uh, they want to kind of drain the swamp of college recruiting and, you know, Mark's a guy that's going to go in. He's going to do things the right way. And he, you know, in the press conference yesterday, he mentioned about he they're going to recruit guys that want to be, uh, that understand what it is to be at Western Carolina. And he's going to recruit guys that want to play into that. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, we, I think we're both really happy for Mark and we both think he'll do a really good job. But what about some of the bigger ones? Chris Mack, as yeah. has been rumored for six months, goes from Louisville to Xavier. Jeff Capel comes off Coach K's staff and goes to Pittsburgh. Let's start with Mack. This feels like it's been a foregone conclusion for months. He's a really good coach. He's very, very accomplished. And Louisville needed someone to write the ship. Well, they needed somebody, obviously, not just to, to, to write the ship, you know, from, a, you know, the, the backward side of things, if you will. You know, the, 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 again, draining the swamp, you know, all the stuff that Louisville's been involved in. But, you know, Louisville's one of those programs, you know, we, we were there, uh, I was there for a football game uh, in October. It was BC at Louisville, and they had, uh, they're doing an exhibition game, the basketball, and the, the, just the streets were alive yep. around the Yum Center. So, I mean, there's, you know, Would you be surprised to know that Chris Mack, who I think we all view as a really good coach, has lost 13 or more games in five of the last seven years? Hmm. That's not going to work at Louisville. No. He's going to have to have more success at Louisville than he did at Xavier. Now, this last year, they were unbelievable. They won 29 games. They won the league. But... Two years ago, they were nine and nine in the Big East. Four years ago, they were nine and nine in the Big East. Now, he's done an excellent job. You don't win almost 70% of your games without doing so. But when you get paid what Louisville is paid, mm -hmm. and when you have the history that Louisville has, when you have those facilities, if he doesn't go to a Final Four in the next three or four years, they're going to start calling for his head. That's the way it works there. Denny Crum, Rick Pitino have set a bar so yeah. high. Like, this isn't capable going to pit where you're taking a program that is down and out and just trying to get it back up to perennial contention in your league. Louisville has no tolerance. The state of Kentucky is a different deal now when yeah. it comes to basketball. I, I remember going to... Uh, Kentucky to uh, Lexington in the first year that Cal was there and uh, Winthrop played there. They played like a noon game or one o'clock game right before, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving. I think it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I was packing up the equipment after the game and there was a security guard there because Cal was doing his post-game radio hit yeah. and there were like 500 people sitting in the stands listening over the loudspeakers and there was a cop standing there just to kind of make sure that nothing happened. Right. And at the end of the, as I was packing up the You sure he wasn't there to make sure people weren't Coming to get well, your, you yeah, know, harass you? I, I, I don't think that was it, but who, who knows? Uh, but I, I was talking to him and I said, uh, boy, the fans here are really glad that uh, that uh, Cal's here and, and Billy Gillespie's gone, huh? And I go, did, did Coach Gillespie have 
this sort of crowd after his post game? And he goes, no, the only crowd he had was when he resigned, there was a crowd at his door helping him pack up and get out of town. (laughs) It's the same thing at Louisville. Chris Mack has done a good job at Xavier. Xavier is a college basketball hotbed. They sell out games and they care, but it's not Louisville. Louisville is a different deal. And I think coaches would tell you, I mean, it's the obvious statement, right? But I mean, recruiting to Louisville is going to be a little bit different than recruiting to to Xavier. Yeah, no question. I mean, you have every advantage at Louisville. The Yum Center is like an an NBA NBA arena. arena. The facilities are incredible. You're getting paid a ton. They have every resource you want. They play in the best conference, et cetera, et cetera. Great history. But you better win. It's it's the Yankees. If you don't win, you will not be employed there any longer. Well, and as popular as Xavier basketball is in Cincinnati, it is also kind of in the mix with, you know, you have Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati. You, you know, you got the Reds, you got the Bengals. You know, in Louisville, it's just Louisville. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, you have your Kentucky fans in Louisville, and then yeah. you have your Louisville right. fans, and that's it. And, and it's not... An SEC city where they think about basketball after the ball season yeah. ends. It's the exact opposite. Football is there just to entertain before midnight madness comes around. Well, let's ask this because I know one of the things you and I have talked a lot about this year is obviously, you know, we talked about during the swamp in college basketball. What does the next generation of college basketball coach look like? Because obviously, ethics and adherence to ethics is going to be something that is probably going to be on the forefront of athletic directors. But on the, but the flip side of that, though, is athletic directors have hired the guys that have kind of put yeah. the situation in place. Yeah, there, there was an interesting uh, rumor I read or someone mentioned to me yesterday that Mike Rice was in contention oh, right, yeah. to be an assistant for Capel at Pitt. And Rice obviously had major problems at Rutgers. He also won games at Rutgers where it's really hard to win games. So does he deserve a a chance of sorts to be an assistant coach? And I think the answer probably is yes after several years. But yeah, I mean, it's a great question. We we saw Charlotte hire Ron Sanchez, right? right? I mean, if I told you six weeks ago that the 49ers hired Ron Sanchez I don't think you'd know who that was. I mean, he's a guy that sat on Tony Bennett's right. bench. And but, we played against him on Winthrop a couple times at Washington right. State and at Virginia. Right, but but that doesn't mean that I know Ron right, Sanchez. Right, right, right. He may do a great job. His pedigree is tremendous. He's worked for a great coach and a great program. But do you prefer the guy with head coaching experience, Mark Godfrey, who's the new coach at Cal State Fullerton, Tom Crean, who is the new coach at Georgia, Tubby Smith, who got the job at High Point, Nick McDevitt, who went from Asheville to Middle Tennessee State, Lorenzo Romar, who's now at Pepperdine, or do you want the Penny Hardaway, who goes from high school coaching to the job at Memphis and obviously has a big name and you know, his pedigree is playing in the case of Ron Sanchez. It's as an assistant coach. Of course, what you want is Chris Mack, someone who has great pedigree and as a track record of success, but it's not necessarily something that you can get. If you're at a smaller school, it's the high major assistant coach 
or the low major head coach? What is the best method? If, if you're Winthrop, and I, I know nothing, right. but let's say Pat Kelsey gets the job at Xavier. I, I, I don't know what the likelihood of that is, but I think it would be crazy to think he's not at least sort of interested in that. So Pat gets the job at Xavier. Mark Prosser has gone right. to Western Carolina. Now your athletic director, Ken Halpin, and you're looking for a basketball coach. I assume you're going to interview your current assistant coaches. They have been a part of a program that has been very successful. That's one way of doing right. it. But neither of the people remaining at that point, since Mark Prosser has left, are your head assistant coaches. Then you can look at the higher majors and look for assistance there or you could dip down to like the D2 ranks, look at head coaches there. We've seen it kind of run the gauntlet, right? We, we, we've seen Scott Cherry come out of that North Carolina pedigree yeah. or Mike Jones come out of that VCU pedigree. These are guys in the Big South that have had some sort of success. We've also seen Bart Lundy come from D2 Queens. We saw Pat Kelsey come from a much bigger school yeah. at Xavier where do you go to start looking for your coach? All right, let's take a quick time out here on the Bearded Carcast. The dogs have come in. They've been pestering Dave for treats, so we're going to take care of them. And uh, when we come back, we'll quickly just kind of look at the Final Four and then get into some other uh, NFL topics. We've got Major League Baseball. This is the Bearded Carcast. Email us. We're thirsty for your for your, for your insight. Beardedcarcast at Outlook.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Beardedcarcast. We're so thirsty, we might put a little, like, headshot of us in your beer. <laughs> It's the Bearded Carcast. I am Mike Pacheco, Dave Friedman alongside, back in the kitchen studios for another week. Episode 17, Final Four is upon us. We've already talked a lot about the coaching changes. Interesting that Tubby Smith would go to High Point, but that's going to be a very uh, what a home intricate, run for High Point. Oh, absolutely! But what a very intricate situation that is. Um, and I mean, what I mean by that is, not only are they hiring a big time head coach, he's also an alumnus, and he's also a donor. Gave gave a million dollars to the athletic department, and they're going to build as part of uh, this whole expansion, if you will. You know, they get the head coach. There's going to be a new arena. They're going to replace the Miller Center. There's going to be a hotel and a convention center, which they're going to tie into, like, a hospitality program on campus. Uh, you know, Nito Cubine, the president there, has done a fantastic job. But it, it's very interesting that uh, that at this point in his career, Tubby Smith goes back to kind of where his basketball college career started as a yeah. player. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that he wants to coach at that level after doing things at such a high level. But there are some people that they just love basketball. He just, he can't get away from it. He wants to be a part of it. Feels a little bit like Cliff Ellis yeah. at Coastal Carolina, yeah. almost like it's a place he's comfortable, a place he wants to be. There's a home to him there. And, and it's a great sort of landing spot for the tail end of his career. I think he's going to be a huge draw at the uh, Buck Dome in Charleston. Yeah. There's also a thought that, uh, Part of the deal is if things go reasonably well, he can pick his successor. Oh, wow. So that's pretty cool. That We'll see how it goes. All right. So we have the final four. I dragged out my, not that we're going to go over this in any great length or detail, but you I, haven't missed a game, right? You're, you're yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, almost the other way. Huh? Uh, not so good. But I do have Villanova. Villanova was my team to win it all, and they are the only team I have left. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think that puts you. No, much. no. I mean, I mean, nobody had Loyola Chicago in the Final Four for the most part. Right. 
and what an amazing Great story. story. Uh, just, you know, I, I've been making the joke for two weeks that if Loyola goes to the final four, I'll switch religions. So, <laughs> you know, a, a buddy of mine texted me uh, on Sunday. He goes, you know, wh- when's the conversion yeah. ceremony? And I said, anytime, so long as the sister is there. I mean, what, what just... That's what makes this thing great. There's no other sport that we allow that guy into the party. And who knows what happens when they get in. And and now Sister Jean is the story of the NCAA tournament. It's amazing that with all the FBI scandal and all the negative press the college basketball is getting, if Loyola or Michigan win, two teams that play each other, one of them is going to be in the championship game, at the end of the day, someone is going to be really happy because Loyola is this miracle, incredible story. How can you cheer against them? And John Beeline essentially is the most well-liked, above-board guy that it's pretty much consensus, does it the right way. And those two teams both have a lot of those elements of, wow, college basketball has a big black guy, but those guys can still win. That's really cool. And John Beeline reminds me, too, a little bit, uh, kind of maybe the same category of the late Skip Prosser. We talked about Skip earlier. Skip's a guy that would do things the right way, but he was also very um, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not erudite, but, you know, he was just – basketball was important to him, but he was also interested in other things. Renaissance. He was kind of like a Renaissance man. Yeah, I think of Beeline in some of the same ways you think about Rick Majerus. Mm. He's a basketball savant. He's never been an assistant coach for one day in his entire life. He started as a high school coach and went NAIA or D2 or D3 junior college and moved all the way up from small D1. I think he was at Canisius yeah. and he went to Richmond and he went to West Virginia and now he's at Michigan. I mean, he got to West Virginia and Gail Catlett had a mess. I mean, they had NCAA problems. They had bad guys. And he basically said, okay, you guys used to be the team. You're not playing here anymore. I'm bringing in all my own guys. And he brought in his kid and he brought in Kevin Pitsnoggle. Mike Gansey transferred from St. Bonaventure and they had that great year. And the stuff they do, whether it's that, one three one zone, a little bit of the pressure offensively, the way they move the ball. He's brilliant. And his teams always get better as the year moves along. And quite frankly, he has kids that you go, didn't I see him playing at the YMCA on Tuesday morning? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. they don't look the part. They just play as a team. We talked about Loyola last week as being a sum of the parts team, yeah. right? The group is better than the individual talent. Michigan is very much the same thing. And then the other side of the bracket, you know, you, you have two battleships, uh, yeah. you know, two juggernauts. I mean, Villanova, you know, with Bron- Jay Brunson and uh, Bridges, you know, the, I mean, the, the very complete team. And, you know, Kansas is – what's interesting about Kansas, I mean, they've had to deal with uh, injuries and, you know, they've been a team that – I mean, they have to deal out going into the tournament. It's not like they had, you know – What did I tell you about but- Kansas right after Selection Sunday? We did the podcast on the Monday after. What did I tell you about Kansas? Easiest draw yeah. in the tournament. I'm not taking anything away from they're one of the best teams in the country, but look who they had to beat aside from the last game. Everyone's going to talk about that game against Duke. It was phenomenal. Yeah, that was Maybe the game. game of the tournament, but Penn, Seton Hall, and Clemson, no monsters there. And I like Brad Brunell a great deal. He was without his best player. Yeah. So you beat Clemson by four points. 
in a neutral site, but not really neutral site game, and a team that's not healthy. Seton Hall was okay. Penn played well for a few minutes, but then the Duke game makes everyone forget that they had a very, very easy path to this Final Four. I must tell you, I think the spread is too large in this game. Everyone is making Villanova out to be the best team in the country. And they very well may be. But I don't think they're five or six points better than everybody else. I mean, you talked about those established veteran players on Villanova. Well, what's Devontae Graham? Yeah. I mean, he's kind of the same thing. And he, he does it all. He passes. He rebounds. He scores. This is a Kansas team that when things get tight, they play well. The way they played yeah. at the end of that Duke game was was really special. Uh, they have like five, six guys that can really knock down the three-pointer. I think as a team, they shoot over 40% from outside the arc. The key is the big guy, Azabuke, who is not necessarily an incredible basketball player, yeah. but rebounder, shot blocker, shot blocker yeah. a presence. Rim protector. And against can't against Villanova, a team that doesn't really play that big. It's okay that they only have one yeah. true big. I, I I think it's going to be a really good game. All right, so that's going to be an interesting one. So what if you had your <laughs> so after the first round of thirty two, and after actually at the end of the first thirty two, we did a second chance bracket in, for the sweet you 16. and John and, and Sam. Right. Well, now let, let's remember, John, your son. He went chalk. Very chalky the first go round. Yeah. Second go round as well. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> but uh, no. But the, the joke there is so after the first games on Thursday night, um, I had only one team remaining uh, in that side of the bracket. It was Michigan. And um, so Sam comes down. She did the same thing. She had one team left. And, so she asked if we could do a third chance bracket. I said, no, you only get, you only get two chances at this. <laughs> two strikes and you're out. Two strikes and you're out. So so that's it. So, I mean, so with the four teams remaining, I mean, obviously the heartstrings pull at Loyola Chicago. And, and you know, they're, they're a good basketball team. but They can win. The way they play, they can win. Can they win it all? Yeah. Why can't they? I mean, they've won four games already and they haven't beaten or they haven't. The, the, they haven't had a cupcake. Right, exactly. So, like, the way they play, you know, they share the ball, they go inside, they have an outside presence, they defend well, though I'm not actually sure how well they defend because the fact they hold the ball for 20 or 25 cents a possession means they don't give up a lot of points because it's a little bit of a slower tempo game. And now, they haven't beaten monsters, Miami, Tennessee, Nevada, Kansas State, but... There's no reason to believe they can't be competitive. The problem is John Beeline. You just you give one of the best coaches in the country five days to yeah. prepare, and I I just don't love that. And and that's I I think the guys that they faced thus far, Larinaga and Barnes and Musselman and Bruce Weber. I I think they're really good coaches, but. John Beeline's special, and you're giving him a lot of time to prepare. I, I I don't love that. So it sounds like Michigan and Villanova in your mind. I think Kansas will give Villanova a very good game. I I I will take. I'll probably take Michigan to win the national title from a odds perspective. Yeah. They're like three to one or three and a half to one to win it all, whereas Villanova is a huge favorite. 
I think Michigan will play everyone very competitively. I don't like betting against Beeline. They're they're not a perfect team, but there's not a perfect team in this group. So yeah, is Villanova the deserving favorite? Yeah, they are. Should they be minus 110 or whatever they are, more than a 50% favorite? I, I don't think so. They have to beat a good Kansas team and then probably a good Michigan team. So do, does Villanova have the most likely chance to win? Yeah. Would I bet on them at their price? No. I think Michigan's the best value. All right. Bearded Carcast at Bearded Carcast on Twitter. Bearded Carcast at Outlook.com if you want to send us an email. And coming up next, we'll get into the NFL. A lot of things coming out of the owners meeting. Some interesting, uh, not, not sorry, well, one change is not really a change. It's more of a clarification. And then there is one change that could have a huge impact on the game. And that's next year on the Bearded Carcast. Episode 17 of the Bearded Carcast. Mike Pacheco, Dave Friedman, Maddie, and Karma scratching at the door. Glad you're joining us here for another edition of the Bearded Carcast. We encourage you to get involved at Bearded Carcast on Twitter. Bearded Carcast at Outlook.com if you want to send us a thought, a comment, a question, a joke, a topic idea, anything. That's how you get a hold of us here on the Bearded Carcast. Absolutely. It's a, it's a lot of fun. If you have suggestions, things that you like, things that you don't like, let us know. We're flexible. That's what people always say about me. A very, yeah, flexible, very flexible, open-minded yeah, very person. Very easygoing. Yeah. No opinions. <laughs> That's Dave. Uh, what's, okay, here's a, something a lot of people have had an opinion on. Uh, the competition committee put forth a proposal to kind of streamline what is a catch. And, that, you know, look, that's been a huge topic over the last, I don't know, four, five, six years anyway. Uh, what is a catch, going to the ground, surviving the ground. So that language was taking, taken out. You still have to have the, the original rules, uh, you know, possession, two steps. Uh, but now if you make a football, you know, they've kind of, I guess, clarified maybe more what a football move is. It seems like it's more clear, and yeah. that's what people want. So I, I think that's I think it's good. Is it going to need some tweaking? Yeah, it is. But by and large, the idea that we're going to have a better idea of what a catch is, that makes sense. Now, the bigger debate seems to be the what we'll call the targeting. Yes. That, that's yeah. that's the rule that has drawn a lot of discussion. Do you have a strong opinion on this? Well, I do in the sense of... It's it, it, what you're you're asking the officials now to have a very subjective call that could have a huge impact in the game, and it is going to go to review. So right. there'll be a discussion. About but it. but my concern is, and I'm all for player safety. Don't get me wrong. And I think if it's an but the players appear, and this is based on a small sample size of former players and current players weighing in, whether it be on TV or on social media. The players seem to think this is going to drastically alter the game. They're saying that because now they have to change how they, and I don't mean target in the targeting sense, but target in the sense of when they line up a player to tackle, now they have to, instead of being instinctual, they now have to maybe think a little bit of where they're going to hit the player and make and try and form. Now, you can make the argument that that's a good thing, and maybe that's something that needs to be done more on the practice side of things. You know what I mean? So in other words, you get it to so that it's more like instinctual. I just don't know how you legislate intent. Right. Here's the thing. Everyone is bickering about small potatoes, a 15-yard penalty, an ejection. How is it going to change the game? If you believe that in any way, shape, or form, the NFL is in trouble, 
Like, there's a problem. Like, ratings are down. People don't want their kids playing football. Then you have to address the whale in the room. Right. Well, the big picture thing is player safety. The big thing is, at some point, inevitably, someone's going to die on a football field. And we've seen guys get paralyzed. We saw Ryan Shazier last year. This is the NFL standing up and saying, we understand that this could potentially change the game dramatically. However, we want the game to last for generations and generations because we're a cash cow and we're going to do everything we can to get rid of things that endanger this huge financial being that is making all of us very, very rich. The guy that's buying the Panthers for $2.5 billion wants as little risk as possible. Well, if you have to change the game, you do it. So like, I understand that our friend Jeff Schwartz and lots of former players, they they have spoken out about how are they going to enforce this? This is going to change the way the game is played. Good. It's 2018. Things, society, sports evolve. You have to do the big things in your life to change them for the better. You have to eliminate the risks of a major problem taking place. It's like vaccinating your baby. You don't take the risk of something awful happening, so you change the language just a little bit. This is going to change the game in the same way that baseball has tweaked with their structure over the years. Not enough teams were in playoff contention A lot of fan bases were alienated, so now there are more wild cards, right? Or the game is going going too slowly, so now we put in a pitch clock. Or in the NHL, people don't like ties, so we're adding some sort of sudden death overtime or shootout. Like, this is football trying to protect the business of football. Like, Targeting in college football, is that a bad rule? No, I'm not against the targeting side of it, but sometimes, and, and I know this is a kind of a fine point, but sometimes what you're lowering your head, not necessarily, you're, not, you're not lowering the crown and trying to slam in. I mean, you're reacting to the player coming at you. So if a player is going lower, you might go a little bit lower to try and meet them. So I think that's, that's the gray area, Dave. I think when it's not, it, when it's, a player trying to get in position to make a tackle, but not trying to lead with the head or hit with the head. And I think those, I think that's where the players are having issue with is now you're almost taking away a defensive player's ability in some cases to put himself in a position to make a play. Yeah. But the players are so focused on the, the very, very little details. They're focused on the actual rules of playing the football game Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. No, but I think it's. But it, for me, it's it's more of I'm doing everything right to to do this, and now you're going to penalize me because I'm trying to put myself in the right position. I'm not trying to target. I'm not trying to. But all hurt of anybody. that, all that's irrelevant. It's a bigger picture. Like you're right. Everything you just said is correct. That's going to be a problem. It's an interpretation. It's an opinion. But, but, but none but, of but it matters. When, but, but I the think, bigger picture. No, but is when what you're not matters. trying. But when you're not trying. Like you're not when you're not trying to hurt somebody and you're getting penalized. I think that's the problem that they're that's going through people's mind. 
everybody understands if you're trying to lower the boom, put your head down, yeah, that should be eliminated. That's that's there's no place for that. But I, there was a play I think it was last year but, or the year before but, where where Luke Keekley, the, the the player was kind of going down and he was trying to meet like the angle of his body was right. He wasn't so what's the downside? Luke Keekley gets ejected from one game, nobody dies, and after a year or two or three, people change their behavior and we have a safer game. You have a safer game, but it's it's. Now you're you're I, I think it's remember a couple of years ago when they completely changed how they uh, defend how receivers could be defended and that's it's kind of opened up the game a little bit right and it, this I think has the potential of maybe doing that because now offensive players can be more I don't want to say aggressive but now they have maybe more of an edge because a defensive player has to completely change how he goes to tackle somebody and if he has to let up and not have an the NFL some- loves that that's more scoring. That's great. I mean, the fact that the NFL is slowly, not in one fell swoop, but slowly going from football to flag football, like you can dislike that, but that's a smart business plan. There's more offense and less risk. And if you think people aren't going to continue to watch, you're out of your mind. <laughs> that's interesting. I, I, I haven't thought of it in the, the terms of whether people would... I, I think this is more of an inside thing. I don't think changing the rules is going to affect how people watch the game necessarily. Do you really think that? No, it's not going to change the game at all. What is the negative to this rule that a couple of guys that are currently playing or well, who I, I used to a, play get upset? I think it's from a competitive side. And what I mean by that is, you're t- and again, not suggesting you're lowering the head and aiming purposely, that is targeting, but just in trying to position yourself and you're just naturally moving your head down, you're putting the defense at you're taking one less I don't, I don't not tool that's not the right way to put it but you now you're putting it in the defensive player's mind they have to think differently they have to now start thinking about how they're playing and gotta imagine game. that people making millions of dollars having to think no but this is a game played at this level Dave a lot of times because of their skill and their repetition and their ability they have the, the things that normal people might think about become instinctual. You know, it's just natural when you do something over and over again. The game is changing, and the people that are involved in the game may, in fact, have to alter what they do or even deal with the repercussions of making a mistake once or twice. But in the long term, they're saving the game. Whether you like the new game or not, they're saving the game for a broad audience who will spend billions of dollars. I just I don't understand how people are so focused on the little detail and don't see the big picture. That's sports, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's easy to get wrapped up, but you need to have yeah. a, a little bit of a larger viewpoint. And I'm things. all for I'm all for I mean, making it, it, the game safer. I just it's think- the basketball coach so 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 into how he's going to defend a screen, but forgot to recruit anyone that can shoot the basketball. Yeah, that's true. Now the uh, the bigger picture to this, Dave, where I think. Moving forward, I think in the in the short term there may be some consternation because it's going to take maybe a year, maybe a season, or maybe half a season. It's going to take a little bit of time, I think, for it to 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 for the players to sink in. But the the bigger picture is making sure that at the youth level and you know at the high school and and even in college, it's making sure they're sure it's a lot guys. easier to teach young people yeah. to emulate a safer game yeah. than a less safe no game or ask them to change their behavior at a certain point in time later on again and it goes back to i am all in agreement of natural uh safety issues and i'm not necessarily against this 
I just think it's going to be very interesting because sometimes you're, you, an instinctual, natural move, you're going to have to – the players are going to have to learn not to do yeah. that. And I think that's going to be that's difficult. Right. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong. And it's once just, you've but taught the be players a, to do that and once they've gone through it, some will figure it out and some won't. And five or six years from now, guys that have been doing it in high school and college won't have that issue. All right, it's time to buy me some peanuts and some Cracker Jacks. <laughs> baseball around. We've solved football. Now we're uh, we're going to move on to baseball because hope springs eternal. Every team starts the year off. We're about zero. to encounter one of the great wastes of hype day of the year. Opening day. Opening day. It's exactly the same as the second day of the season, the third day of the season, the 12th, the 28th, the 52nd, and the 111th. But for some reason, we get much more excited about opening day. We don't do this in the NFL. Week two is a really big deal, just like week one. Why on God's green earth would someone pay a scalper hundreds of dollars to go to opening day when they can buy tickets at face value for the second game. Okay, you grew up in an area, in the Bay Area, where your weather, season to season, maybe varies a little bit, doesn't vary that much. You have pretty much good weather all year round. In the Northeast, and of course, I grew up in Boston, opening day, for two reasons, was important. One... But the weather isn't better opening day No, no, day hold, on, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You gotta, you gotta let me... I, I know it's a big wind-up, but you gotta let me get there. So, first of all, being a Red Sox fan, now remember, I grew up in an era where the Red Sox weren't winning championships. You know, my, my nephews and, and my son, you know, they know nothing but a world where the Red Sox are, have been world champs, right? So, it was that the cleansing of the year before, and this new season was starting, and it was... It was our year. The Red Sox, this was our year to win. And, of course, 99% of the time, it was not our year. I think it was 100% of the time up until yeah. a few no, but years I mean, no, ago. But, but, but even – we were happy at that point getting to the playoffs. Sure. I mean, there were, there were some lean years yeah. uh, being a Red Sox fan. So, so from a competitive standpoint, it was, it was – we had a chance. You know, it was, So you say we got a chance. Yes, we got a chance. And then, two, you know, you'd have some brutal winners in New England. And opening day was just kind of that – that kind of that recognition that uh, you know, hopefully the bad weather was was behind you, and it was baseball season. And you know, be, growing up in a baseball area, uh, you know, up until probably I don't know, two thousand one. Uh, you know, the, the Red Sox and the Patriots are still extremely popular. Depending on who you talk to up there, one is better than the other. Uh, but when I was a kid, you know, in the eighties, early nineties, I mean, it, the Red Sox. You could talk Red Sox. 365. You know, now the NFL has taken over that. I mean, the NFL, even in Boston, I mean, you, you could talk Patriots every day, even even if it's, you know, World Series time. You could still squeeze in right, some. But why is opening day more important than any other Because day? it's the, the, the signal of, of a beginning. It's, 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 no. It's, yes. No, it's exactly the same as every other day. Game one is the same as game 11, is the same as game 60 and 112. They're all equal. We're getting excited for no reason. It's just, it's just like... It's exciting that the year is here, and now we have games five or six days a week. But the the one game opening day, it, it doesn't mean any more or any less. Well, it's like New Year's Day. Like January second is really no different than January first, except they're great ball games on, and it's a holiday, and people are off from work. Well, in Boston, I would argue that opening day is a holiday. <laughs> yeah, just for no particular opening day. No, no. That being said, but but I'm see, excited. you didn't grow up in that culture though. Like for for people in New England, it's an important day. 
Well, I mean, maybe so, but not very intelligently. I mean, it just it's, says it's, you. Well, it doesn't make <laughs> like, any sense. Who, may, who makes you like? But the why? Guy in why would of... that game be? Why would it be any more important? It's one baseball it's game, just to, like 162 the, are. Exactly, and that's what separates it because it's it's special because it's opening day. Yeah, I'd rather go on July 5th and July 4th, and I'd rather go to the second game than the first game. But There's think just about, more value. No, but think about it. Every other sport, uh, for the most part, holds some sort of training camp in that town. Baseball, you go to Florida. Or you go to Arizona. So back in the day, you were getting dispatches on the Boston Globe from guys who are in Florida. You know, it's not like training camp where you can go to Spartanburg and you can watch the Panthers train. You can kind of get revved up that way. You know, the, the Hornets, uh, they're here. They do play some games in the, in the area. But for the most part, you can go see them preseason. Same thing with hockey. But baseball, your first chance to see your team since October, hopefully, mostly, mostly at the end of September, is on opening day. It's the sort first of. Day. I mean, the Angels and the Dodgers play exhibitions. The A's and the Giants play yeah, exhibitions. But the that's, White Sox that's, and the but Cubs that's play new. exhibitions. That's 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 new. That really hasn't been the case. Normally, you would do all that uh, in Florida. Now, re- now recently, the the big thing is to to do exhibitions uh, in the city. But still, it's opening day. So, what are you excited about this year in baseball? I, I'm excited to see. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see. Uh, um, Otani. Yeah, so am I. Um, just because not too many people do what he's going to be doing. I mean, two-way players. We Virtually had a two-way none. player. When I was in Canapolis, we had a Wes Whistler from US, UCLA. He was a really good pitcher, good hitter. He ended up just being a pitcher. And uh, But it's rare that you see a guy that has that two-way ability. I, I'm interested to see yeah, that. Yeah, and the fact that he didn't have a good spring training, I think, makes it more interesting because if he was good in the spring and everyone was talking about how hyped and how great he was going to be now there's this thought that like maybe he's going to be terrible so like it could go all the way from he's one of the most interesting players to he's not a storyline at all and they spent all this money on him how do they bridge it what if he's really good or what if he's really bad on the mound now does he stop pitching and start hitting a lot more there's so many different ways it can go I I think it's a, a fascinating story I'm interested to see some of the new managers. You know, is, is Aaron Boone stepping out of the broadcast booth, going to the Yankees with a stacked team? I think manager is the least important position in professional sports. I watched Art House sleep through games for years, <laughs> made no difference yeah. at all. I, I mean, for six innings, yeah. you never pinch hit. You don't change pitchers. Yeah. You, you just kind of sit there. Can I get you a cappuccino? Yeah, I, like... The, the new managers, I you know, th- there are a few special guys. I think probably the guy with the Cubs is special. I like Terry Francona a great deal, yeah. but by and large, I just, I I think those guys sort of are stealing paychecks. I mean, <laughs> it's a billion-dollar industry, so they ought to get paid well, but uh, not really interested. I mean, these are not NFL coaches that are watching film and offense and defense and making adjustments during the game it's it's roll out the balls a lot of the time i'm very interested to see uh there's a couple of teams that have some interesting storylines uh, you know obviously here in charlotte and i work for the knights the charlotte knights of the triple a team for the white Sox. you know the, uh, there's a lot of excitement in the white Sox. they were here for an exhibition game on monday they're probably still a little bit maybe a year or two away a lot of the younger players are starting to develop matt davidson the guy that we saw here for for a couple of years 26 home runs last year. If I watch a, a White Sox game this year, it'll be a surprise. And I love Jason Benetti, their play-by-play guy. He's he's a friend and a terrific guy. I, I just I can't come up with a compelling reason to watch the White Sox play. Yoan Moncada. 
Yeah. Tyler Saladino, the wife, yeah. chimes in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Monca- where's Dave's cappuccino? Yeah. Moncada is a unique talent. He, I mean, he, he's a guy that that is interesting. But I, I, I can't see. I mean, I don't think they're a playoff contender. I can't see dedicating three hours. I mean, I'll, I'll watch an hour here, or a few minutes there to to watch Benetti. I mean, Abreu's a terrific player. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think anyone is suggesting they're a year away. They're five years away. Well, I, I I don't mean a year away from winning a World Series. I think a year away from being a team that has a chance to get themselves into the playoffs. I mean, they still have the young pitchers, right? Giolito, yeah, the, and, Giolito uh, and Lopez. Yeah, so I mean, those guys maybe they could be fun you know, at some point. James Shields, an older guy, but a guy that you know kind of is kind of the the old veteran that, that kind of right. But but in the end, if you're not a White Sox fan or a Knights fan, there's no compelling reason to watch them. I mean, they're, they're they're probably not going anywhere in the right now. I mean, they probably you're not going to watch to see what Yolmer Sanchez does with his hair. I've like never that. heard of him. <laughs> yes, you have, Carlos Sanchez. He oh. changed his name to Yolmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like I just like when you look at the teams that someone might watch other than their favorite team. To me, the most interesting team in the league is the Cubs. Oh, I mean, absolutely. they won the World Series two years ago, and they weren't quite as good last year. Now they've brought in Yu Darvish to replace yeah. Jake Arrieta. They've got a lot to like at a lot of different positions, a good manager, a great fan base. I mean, they're the team I'd be most interested in. Red Sox, obviously, their big three with David Price. They got J.D. Martinez. They're going to be interesting to watch. Yankees, obviously, with with bringing in Stanton along with Judge. And they have the young talent. Young that's talent, the thing yeah. that's about the Yankees. It's easy to hate the Yankees, and particularly the way they used to build. But they've got But they've guys, done it old school, like, like through exactly, the draft. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the catcher is interesting. Sanchez. Yeah. Sanchez. And, and Judge, you mentioned. And my understanding is, and you follow it closer than I do, they're their farm system is really quite good. So kind of the young build within, mix it with the one or two free yeah. agents. I, they they are very interesting. What about the A's? How about the A's? Yeah, they're terrible. They're going to be terrible. Now, the Giants have made some interesting moves. Terrible. Bringing in Longoria. Hate you don't like the moves? Guys. Yeah. No, old guys. I don't want old guys. Old guys are overpaid. Old guys break down. Yeah. I, I, I want young guys. That's that's the thing about Stanton. You're able to get a guy in the prime of his career yeah. in a bandbox that's Yankee Stadium. And that that's that's really cool. I mean, the the Giants brought in Longoria and McCutcheon. I don't think you can win with them, do you? So is that more of a press conference, like make the? I mean, that's what Brian Sabian has always done. He's brought in veteran guys. I just, I think that's a really tough way to win in a division that sent three teams to the playoffs last year. I, I, I that that doesn't do much for me. Now, give me because sometimes we we talk about our friends in the desert. Uh, I've never really understood what how you uh, gamble on baseball. Well, it's it's all about percentages. But the numbers are strange. Like the, like like the like the team will be like plus one hundred or something like that, right? Right. I mean, plus one hundred means you have a fifty percent chance of winning. So it's all percentages. If you're one to three, that means you have a you're betting three to win. One. One. Okay. That means you better have a sixty seven percent chance of winning. That, that's how it works. All of those numbers correspond with a percentage. And then if you are above that percentage, it's a good bet. And below that percentage, it's a bad bet. 
Does that make sense? I mean, this is this is like basic horse racing stuff, yeah. right? If you're two to one and you have a very good chance of winning, well, you're doubling your money. Right. If you're five to one, you're multiplying your winnings by five. So, it's really so you have to, if you're five to one, you need to yeah. have better than a 20% chance of winning to make it a good bet. It's the same thing in baseball. If you're minus 100 or plus 100, that's the same thing. You're betting one to win one. Right. If you're minus 120 or you're minus 110, you're betting 110 to win 100. So your chances better go up from 50% to, you know, 51, 52%. If you're minus 120, you're betting 120 to win 100. So if you're minus 350 because Clayton Kershaw is pitching, well, then you better win 75, 80% of your games to make that a good bet. Yeah. That's interesting. So, and it, obviously, it's not really a spread system. It's really more of the percentage. Well, there are spreads too. It's there's a run spread. So, if you want, let's say Kershaw is facing, I think he's facing like Ty Block and the Giants yeah. to start the year, right? Well, the Dodgers are going to be an enormous favorite in that game. So, either you can lay those huge odds, you can bet three hundred to win one hundred minus three hundred, or maybe the Dodgers are a two run favorite. Yeah. So now. You're betting at minus 110. You're essentially making the odds 50-50. You're betting 110 to win 100. But now they have to win by more than two runs. So if they win the game 5-4, you lose. If they win the game 5-3, you push and you break even. And if they win the game 5-2, you're minus the two runs and you win. I just remember growing up, like the Boston Herald would always have the 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 lines of all yeah. the games. And baseball was never really runs. It was always the... Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. It's the, it's the odds. I mean, but the odds very easily translate into percentages. And then you can simply assess, do they have a better than 66% chance or less than a 66% chance? The One of the ways a lot of people like to bet now, and I think this has always been the case to some degree, is half game lines so you only bet what the score is going to be at the end of the fifth inning and the reason people like to bet that way is it's more controllable you know what the starting lineup is there aren't going to be a lot of substitutions in the first five innings and you think it's pretty likely the starting pitchers are going to last through the first five innings so it's probably going to be if Kershaw is minus 300 against the Giants for the full game he might be minus 350 for the first five innings because the Dodgers' bullpen is not as good as Clayton Kershaw is. And there you have it, your, uh, our dummy's guide to betting on baseball, courtesy of our good friend Dave Friedman here. What else? We got anything else we need to, to clear the docket on before we uh, say, say goodbye? Well, you've spent a ton of time broadcasting baseball, watching baseball on TV, going to games as a kid. I did the same thing. Do, do you have a baseball story, whether it's as a fan or a broadcaster or just like what? what is your great memory of baseball through all the years? Well, I have a ton of them. Uh, the one that comes to mind uh, right off the bat and it wasn't an opening day story, but um, uh, actually two stories. So one, and not so much a story, but just I, I always remember, particularly at the beginning of the season, the first time I went to a game with my dad and just walking up one of the, the, the tunnels on first base side and just seeing the green field at Fenway and the green monster. And just that image is always stuck in my head. Um, my other happy story as a kid was uh i think it was an opening day story my my friend's mom had uh she she was one of those uh uh ladies that would always uh like call 
radio stations for contests. Yeah. And, uh, and she was good at it. Like she would yeah. win stuff all the time. So she won. Um, she won tickets to the Red Sox. I don't. I can't remember if it was opening day or if it was early in the season. But uh, my mother let me go with them to the baseball game, and it was one of those deals where uh, the uh, the sun was the way the sun was because it was an afternoon game. Uh, I came home and I had like a sunburn on half my face. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it's the uh, the truckers' town. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was that that was always fun. But just I mean, I just loved going to games as a kid. Um, you know, back then things were a little bit. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, but things didn't cost as much either. So I just remember, you know, getting like, you know, five or six, ten bucks from my mom and getting a, a Fenway Frank and getting the, the they have a special ice cream sandwich uh, at Fenway that's um, it's like vanilla, chocolate in the middle, vanilla, and then it's coated in fudge. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've that was like you, back then you couldn't really get that in the stores, or at least we they didn't have it in our supermarket. So uh, going to get that was always. Always fun, and then watching the guys. I mean, you know, we saw Jim Rice and Carl Yastrzemski. My favorite story. And I know you only asked for one. You're getting three. Um, you'll love this. When I was in high school, my freshman year, I was doing cross country, and we were we were volunteering on a on a uh, Sunday race. It was a big race. It was um, in like the North End, through the North End, and, and we went there to volunteer, and. We're getting ready to leave because, you know, road races, they do it like 8 in the morning. And so we were done, I think, by like noon. And my buddy John McGar was like, hey, you know, this is this is Yaz's last day. Let's, let, let's go and let's see if we can, you know, get tickets. And we literally had like, I don't know, $5 to the each of us, right? So um, we we get over to uh, – we, we figured we had to save our money. So uh, – and John was a little bit of a talker. So we, we, we convinced the people at the T to let us get on for free. At Government Center, yeah, and we uh, we Love made it over to Fenway, and then um, now this tells you how ch- changed times, right? Tickets I think were four, two dollars in the bleachers back then, so we used our remaining five dollars, and we bought uh, we scalped bleacher seats for Yaz's last game. Yeah, that's amazing. I love. And that I still stuff. have. Um, they gave out Yaz posters to everybody that went in. Yeah, and, so, and we had to talk our way home too. And yeah. fortunately, the, the the guys at the T. Let us there you go. Let us get on for free. So that, that those are those are some of my um, baseball and more more fan experience than uh, than actual watching baseball games. I'll I'll save my best experiences are as fans too. And I love broadcasting games and I I like watching games on TV and such. But there is something special about going to games. I think baseball is one of those sports that it is good on the radio in the background. It's good on TV to, you know, check in here and there, but, but there is something fun about going to the game and being there. It it tends not to be the most expensive sport though. It's gotten a little bit pricey, but, but those games that you saw, I was at Randy Johnson's perfect game. I've been to several world series, but I'm not sure my favorite experience isn't the, the game I went to parked in my dad's parking spot. He works in San Francisco and uh, went 18 innings, got back to the car and the garage was locked and ended up just being like trapped in San Francisco in the middle of the night with a buddy of mine, not knowing what to do. You know, this is before cell phones going to a payphone, calling the Mike and Mike morning show, which was in its very, very early days at the time. And so was that your first national radio hit? Maybe it could have been my first national radio kid. And, uh, that, like talking to a call screener, they weren't like taking calls yeah. or anything. And the guy goes, hold on, what's going on? He goes, 
wait a second, just a minute. And then they they put me on and Greenberg and Gold just thought it was the most hilarious thing of all time. And they just kind of off the cuff were like, well, if anyone, where are you exactly? And I can explain <laughs> where we were just like off the cuff. Uh, they're like, if, if anyone's around, you know, pick Dave and his buddy up. And some cabbie pulled up and took us to like an all night diner type deal. And then we got back to the car and, you know, it was like 6 a.m. when the, the lot opened, drove it back home and went to the ace game at noon the next day. That is awesome. <laughs> I've never heard that story. You never told me that story. Yeah, that's outstanding. That, that, that's pretty good. Well, I always remember also uh, in October and end of September last year. I took John to his first game at Fenway. Uh, we actually had been there before with the Knights. They did a um, – so he'd been there, but he was like four at the time. This was our first, like, Red Sox game, um, and I'll always remember that. That was a lot of fun. All right, that'll do it for us, right? We're done. Uh, another edition, 17. Enjoy the Bearded final Car four. Cast. Enjoy the final four. Hey, if you're just coming on the Bearded Carcast for the first time, you can check out on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can check out the other 16. We won't be mad at you. Go get <laughs> caught up. You can send us an email – beardedcarcast at outlook.com and follow us along on Twitter at beardedcarcast.